just wonderful to see you on Sunday night. I want to I want to thank you as a church for supporting ministries on Sunday night. I know, uh, you know, times change and people do church different. And uh, a lot of, you know, churches don't do ministry on Sunday evening anymore. They do Sunday morning and then they do other ministries during the week, which is fine. But I am so thankful that we have a congregation who supports coming back on Sunday afternoon, and we have, during the school year, a very robust Awana program, lots of children, and and even during Awana, we do Bible studies in here, and, and folks come, so uh, I'm thankful. Um, I, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, sometimes guys will say, well, you know, people vote with their feet, they just won't come back. Well, yeah, the sheep will come to the trough if you feed them, that's all I know, so if you you know, if you don't feed them, they won't come back. So uh, I think it really depends on what you do with God's Word. So I'm thankful for you. Uh, take your copy of God's Word and go to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. First and second Timothy, Titus is in that zip code. So uh, it's a little book. And I want to, we're going to do ordination tonight of four men who have been led of the Lord to serve as deacons in the church. And I want to talk a little bit from God's Word about church government and leadership, because um, in, in my opinion, when I read the Bible, I think our church leadership and structures today have in some ways gotten away from God's design uh, for the New Testament church, and so I want us to think about that. Uh, the church began, you, you know, you're the Sunday night crowd, so you really know uh, the church wasn't in the Old Testament. It was Israel. God was focused on Israel bringing about the gospel plan, Jesus born of the Jews, born of the Virgin Mary, and you know the gospel story. But after Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day, 40 days he was in his resurrection body appearing here on earth. Uh, he ascended back to heaven, and he told his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come. And on Pentecost, on that, on that first day when the, when the church was born, the Holy Spirit came and fell on those disciples in the upper room, and the church was born by the power of the Holy Spirit and became a living entity. It's made up of born-again believers who are, who are the bride of Christ. And so the church had its founding, if you will, uh, 2,000 years ago by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there were, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, if you read, particularly in the, in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church, if you read about the birth of the church in the Gospels and then get into Acts and you read of, of the event, the church had some unique characteristics early on. Uh, and let me just give you a few of them very quickly so that you can recognize whether we still do this or not. Number one, the church as a religious entity, if you want to call it, put it under the umbrella of religious, was very familial in its operation, meaning they're like a family. When you look at the, at the New Testament church and the book of Acts, they met almost every day to break bread together. I mean, every day. They got together, they broke bread, they prayed together, they, they listened to the apostles teach. So on, on an almost uh, daily basis, they were fellowshipping one another in a, in a very familial way. And, and it should be true of a local church today that we're, we're a family of God, a group of believers whom God has saved out of every tongue and tribe and nation in the world, but we are related in Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and we should act like it. Amen. You say, well, pastor, sometimes brothers and sisters fight. 
Well, I know, but it shouldn't be in the church, okay? I mean, the church is different. We shouldn't argue with one another, and we shouldn't have fallen out with one another because love for one another should rule uh, what we do, and, and our desire to have the best for those around us and edify them should overrule us. So the church was like a family. Secondly, the church was very uh, peculiar in its day. They were openly committed to Christ. In fact, the first Christians were called Christians because the people who were looking at them said, they look like Jesus. I would that that were true of the church today. Because it's not. The church today doesn't look enough like Jesus. And the church is us. We all too often look too much like the world. And the world can't tell the difference. See, we should be a peculiar people because the Bible says we are. The Bible says we are a peculiar people saved by God. Now, not peculiar in a bad way, as in weird, but peculiar as in special, meaning God saved us, put us in his family. We are his redeemed. And all too often the church doesn't live like who they are in Christ. We live too much like the world, which is probably why the church is so powerless in our society today. Number three, which connects to number two, the first church in Jerusalem was pure. When I say pure, I mean there weren't people living duplicitous lives hanging out in Jerusalem church. You say, how do you know that? Because I read Acts chapter 5. You know what happened in Acts chapter 5? In Acts chapter 4, this guy named Barnabas sold some property and brought it to the apostles and laid the money at their feet to distribute among the saints in Jerusalem. And everybody probably patted Barnabas on the back and said, man, what a great thing God led you to do. And then in chapter 5, there's this, this married couple, husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And so they said, man, we can get in on that. So they sold some property they had to bring to the apostles, except they lied. They told the apostles, they said, this is the whole amount of money that we sold the property for, but they agreed among themselves to keep back part of the price for themselves. So in essence, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied before God. Now listen, Peter later said to them, it was your property when you had it, you could have sold it and did whatever you wanted to with it. There was no, you didn't have to give the money to the church. In fact, you could have said, we're going to give half the money to the church and everything would have been cool. And nobody would say anything. But they lied. They wanted people to think better of them than they were. They said, we gave all the money when they kept half of it. And do you know what happened to them? They dropped dead in front of the church. And the best part of that story is at the end it said, great fear fell upon all the people. I bet it did. <laughs> I mean, think about that. They come down front and Peter's down there preaching and they go, man, we sold this property and here's the money. And they lay it at Peter's feet and Peter said, oh man, you're in trouble. Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, you're lying and you're not telling the truth and this can cost your life and boom, he drops dead. And then his wife comes in later and says the same story. And he said, the same guys carried your husband out here, going to carry you out of here. And she fell dead. You say, man, God was tough. No, he's the same God. He hadn't changed since then. But you know what? God was making a point in that very first church that purity is essential. That we not be hypocrites. That we not live one way out in the world and come in here and act like we're something else. God takes that seriously in case you miss that. All right? I mean, he, he took those two Christians home. Number four, and this is where church government comes in. It has to do with what we are going to do tonight. In the church in Acts, there was no hierarchical system. There was no system of laity separated from clergy. None of that. You don't find any of that in the New Testament. 
You don't find God saying, well, you know, there's the, there's the sheep and the clergy are in another class above them. No, no, no. What you find is there's no big shots. We're all just shots. We're all, we're all just saved. And God calls us to different places of service within the body. But it doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean one place of service is more important than another place of service. Some places of service might be more visible than other places of service, but it doesn't mean they're any less important because when you read in 1 Corinthians, what did Paul say to the church? Some of you are to toes, some of you are to eyes, some of you are to ears. Where, where would the seeing be if you didn't have the eyes and you, know, you had the ears? Where would the hearing be if all you had was eyes and you didn't have ears? You know, Paul did that whole, that whole analogy thing. And it's true today. No matter where we serve in the body of Christ, our place of service is vital to the edifying of the body of believers and the sharing of the gospel and to doing the ministry. And so there was no hierarchy of, of, of positions in the church. The only two positions identified in the Bible that we might call positions of leadership are elders and deacons. That's it. And we're going to talk about those two positions in just a moment in more detail, but that's all that you find in the book of Acts. Uh, number five, and lastly, the church in the book of Acts was very specific in its missional endeavor. It was very missional. And when I say that, I mean the church grew because the people who were saved told people around them and brought them, and God drew them and saved them. And I say this with all love and kindness, but it's true. The reason the church doesn't grow today is the vast majority of the congregations not involved in sharing the gospel. And it, even, it isn't even a matter of you being adept enough to be a missionary to just share the gospel like, you know, just kill it every time you tell somebody about Jesus. It is, listen, it is more about you don't even invite them to come. You don't even say, hey man, come to church with me. Hey, we go to church down here, would you come? We don't even do that. Now I don't think, I think you do a great job. I mean, we'll baptize eight young people to, tonight. That's, praise God for that. But the point is we could baptize 16, right? I mean, we could, we, could, we could reach more people. And you say, well, pastor, that's what we pay you to do. No. No, it's not. No. You see, the church, uh, the church is you. It's us. You and me together. There's no hiring a, a gunslinger to go out and win people to Jesus, okay? You and I together have the responsibility to be the New Testament church, to share and invite people to come and be a witness to them. And so those were five peculiar things about the church in the first century that I would just suggest to you we lack in many ways in, 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 the, in the 21st century, that we don't do those things and we should. Now, in conjunction with that new church, Paul, in this passage, gives some instruction to Titus. And by the way, gives the exact same instruction to Timothy in another place. We're going to look at Titus first. Titus 1.5. Notice what Paul said to Titus here. He said, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Essentially, what Paul said to Titus was, look, for whatever reason, Paul uh, didn't stay in, in Crete as long as he wanted to. And he said to Titus, he said, you need to go there and set in order the things that are lacking. In other words, organize it. And he said, what you need to do is appoint elders in the church to help teach the church and lead the church. 
So he said, I want you to go appoint elders. He said the same thing to Timothy about the churches in Ephesus. He said, I want you to go there and set things in order, appoint the elders, organize the church so they can function. Understand this. God doesn't create chaos. The church should be orderly. And the structure God put in it is not a hierarchical structure. It's a structure for us to function efficiently, for us to edify one another. Uh, the pastor, the elder, which I'm going to show you in a moment, that, that word is used in a conjunction with a lot of terms today. Each of us have our position. The pastor teaches and shepherds and oversees the flock and looks over. But you should have a plurality of elders. It shouldn't just be one person who's dictating the church, who's making all the decisions because God didn't call one person to make all the decisions. Now you need leadership or there would be chaos. We understand that. But the church is more a first among equals. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's more a first among equals and we work together. And so Paul said to Titus, and he said later to Timothy, I want you to go appoint elders in these churches. Now, let's talk about those two words, elders and deacons. Because they're the only two you find in, in the New Testament where there are actual positions in the church, if you will. Episcopos is a Greek word for which you get overseer. Sometimes it's called bishop. Now we in the Baptist church in this denomination, and I'll tell you, well, I'm not going to tell you where it all came from. We'd be here all night in church history. But in the Baptist denomination, we don't use the word, we use pastor, poimain, shepherd, more than we call the pastor a bishop. Now, if I wore my collar the other way and, you know, wore the thing, you might say bishop ball, but no, let's don't do that, okay? But if you did, it wouldn't be an error. I mean, because bishop, is the same as episcopos, it means an overseer. Well, we call pastors, pastors, which comes from the word poimain, or the shepherd. I think that's a better term for leadership in the church, because what did God ask Peter to do? You're going to feed my sheep? Ask him three times. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Well, that's what we do as elders in the church. But now elders are not restricted, as I said a moment ago, to one person. We have a board of elders. We have a group of men who are gifted at teaching, who can teach, who know the Bible, who are elders in this church. I serve with them. They're there for my accountability. I mean, they hold me accountable. Dictators don't, aren't accountable to anybody. And that's not how the church is supposed to be set up. I'll tell you a sad story real quick. When we, not long after we moved out here on this property, I went to a meeting uh, pastors are always having meetings, by the way, usually around food, but that's another thing. But I went to this meeting, and we had this, like, association thing, and the pastors were all there. And, and pastors, you know, they talk about pastoral stuff when they're together, you know, what's going on at your church, and what are you, what are you guys up to? And this young fellow had, had become pastor of an old church. And when I say old church, the church had been there 100 years. What do you know about a church that's been there 100 years? They probably do things a certain way. What do you think? They, they probably have, you know, their, their churchy system set up, and woe to him who messes with it, right? I mean, think, I mean, just being completely transparent, right? If you're going to mess with it, you better earn some trust first, is what I'm saying. You better go in there, make some friends, and, and earn their trust before you start messing with their traditions. Well, this young fella had become pastor of this church that had been there 100 years, and I was talking to him. And I said, well, how's it going over there? And 
I probably shouldn't ask that question because <laughs> for the next 20 minutes, I got to answer. And here's the reason I'm using this illustration. At some point, his frustration began to show that he was frustrated, that, that the church, the people, wouldn't do what he told them to do. So I said to him, I said, why don't you just back off and relax? He said, what do you mean? I said, what did God call you there to do? Being a pastor. I said, yeah, poor man. I said, you know what shepherds do? Man, they feed the sheep. They protect the sheep. They look over them. They don't try to make them something other than a sheep. I said, why don't you leave them alone and just teach them the Bible? Oh, and by the way, if you love them, they'll love you back. He said, no, nah, if they don't do what I say, they can leave. I said, that's probably not the approach you ought to take. You know what happened at church? It ain't there anymore. Been a hundred years, now it's all gone. You know who did that? Him. Listen, elders, Episcopos, Poimane, God to feed the sheep. A pastor's primary job in the New Testament and today is to teach the Bible. That's my number one job. Now, yeah, as a pastor, I do all the other stuff. I don't want nobody coming in here messing with you. I try to protect you from false doctrine. I try to make sure we're teaching the right stuff. All that's my responsibility. But my main job is to study this book to the, and to the best of my ability by the Holy Spirit to teach you what God's Word says. That's my job. There are other people in the church who have other jobs to make the church function. It's not my job to do all their jobs. You follow me? Like the pastor shouldn't be running VBS. I'm thankful Miss Kim doesn't know. God, thank you for Miss Kim because I don't want to do VBS. Thank you for Miss Kim because I don't want to teach you on You know what I mean? I mean, the, the whole thing. So elders, point mains. And then the second position that you find in church is deacons, diakonos. The word means a servant. You find an example, again, all in the New Testament. It doesn't call them deacons in the book of Acts, but when there was trouble with the Greek widows and they didn't feel like they were being cared for in the church, the apostles said, look, it's not fit for us, which is what I was just saying, to forsake praying and studying the Word of God to, to wait on tables. Not that we mind waiting on tables. I'd love to do that, but somebody's got to teach. And that's what God called us to. He said, so why don't you look out among yourself and call out some men who are already serving, who are gifted to serve, and let them handle that ministry. And the church exploded because it met the need, and those men served in the capacity of deacons. Deacon, or diakonos, most literally means a table waiter, one who serves the table. So these men that come tonight, and we ordain them as deacons to serve in this church, it's not a position where they wear a badge, it's a place of service, just like the rest of us. That's what they're going to do they're going to serve and minister to the church. Now a little more history, and then we're going to look at deacons and we're going to do ordination. The church did pretty good through the first 250, 300 years of its life. And pretty good, I don't mean it was easy because persecution in the Roman Empire was intense. But Constantine came along, and the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., kind of changed everything. It was a game changer for the church, not for the better. When the church was under persecution, it was pure. There was no nonsense because, listen, if you said, I love Jesus, it cost you your life. So nobody was going to fake that, right? But in 313, the Edict of Milan, Constantine eliminated persecution against the church in the Roman Empire. He said, we're going to accept Christianity 
among all the other religions in the Roman Empire, it can be practiced, and, and Christianity began to be corrupted. There became this hierarchical system, and there became this, and, and the church became, it got in bed with the political system, and it, and it became corrupted, and we had this hierarchy system. And you guys know I don't pick on any denominations, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but the hierarchical structure in the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. It's not biblical. It's not in there. And so we got into that, and we, and we went down that road uh, until 1517. In 1517, there was a Roman Catholic monk who was teaching the Bible. He was teaching the New Testament, and he was teaching Romans. And he was in his spire up there in his library studying to teach Romans, and he just couldn't get past the part about salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. He, he was wrestling with that and how to teach it in light of church tradition, the highest position in the church, and the Bible all have equal weight, he couldn't, he couldn't justify that. And so Martin Luther came to the realization that the religious system he was serving in was off the mark. And he wrote a letter to the Pope and got excommunicated immediately. And so then he wrote his 95 theses and, and nailed them to the church door of Wittenberg, and then they tried to kill him. But his, his thing started what's called the Protestant Reformation. And what, what, and what that was, because just before that, the printing press was invented. And that's a big deal, because the printing press allowed them to do what? Mass-produced the daylights out of the Bible. And so as they start producing the Bible in mass quantities, and the Protestant Reformation takes place, what happened, we begin to tell people, read the Bible for yourself. Here's a copy. Read it. And a, and a resurgence was born of biblical conservatism, if you will, evangelicalism, going back to the Bible. And two things came out of the Protestant Reformation. A lot came out of it, but for sake of time, two things. Number one, salvation's by grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing. That was reestablished. Without the church, you don't need a church, you don't need, you don't need to do anything but trust Jesus. And two, sola scriptura in Latin means the Bible alone, meaning the Bible is the sole source of authority for all of life, for every generation, plus nothing. So those two things came out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, and from that, in more modern times, were born three church organizations, if you will. Y'all should have be taking notes of this next week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> three forms of church were came out of that. I won't say it was born out of it, but three that we know, and they're general categories. One is the uh, Episcopal form, which is that hierarchical structure, bishops and priests and down to laity and, and, the, and the clergy can only do certain things and the congregation is, you know, can't do things and that kind of thing. Okay. Then out of that also came what's called a, a presbyter form or Presbyterian form where you have an elder ruled church, pretty much conservative Presbyterian churches. And again, I'm not picking on, but if I wasn't Baptist, I'd probably be Presbyterian. Everybody's, oh no, but I'm Baptist, so relax. The Presbyterian form is you have a board of elders who rule the church, not lead the church. They, it's an elder board and, and pastors are appointed and, and sent there from this hierarchical structure, which that's the part I don't really agree with. And then a third general form was what's called free congregational rule. That's us, okay. That's, that's the Baptist church. 
Now, in the free congregational rule, what that means is the church, all of us, work together on the ministry. We all make decisions together. We have business meetings. We decide together under the leadership point of shepherds and elders. We decide together to do ministries. Now, I think the reason our church is organized this way is because I believe this is the most biblical format. We are a free congregational church, congregational ruled, if you will, but I believe in, in, in not elder rulership, but in elder leadership. So we have a board of elders who handle spiritual matters and are very profitable for this church. You see, let me give you one example, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap it up and do ordination. Let's say there's a spiritual issue in the church. There's some doctrinal issue. The first most visible place they're going to come to is my office, and they're going to lay it on my desk. And they're going to say, here's a spiritual issue, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. And they're going to ask me to rule. Pastor, what do you say? If it's, a, if it's with a person, then no matter what I say, it becomes personal. You follow me? In other words, if that person disagrees and I make a, you know, and I take my Bible and I go, well, here's why I don't think that's right. No matter what I say, it's going to be personal. It's going to be between me and them. You know what's better? I call together the elders, like five or seven of them, and I lay it on their desk. And I say, hey, we got this issue. We, we need to discuss this. And then as a group of, of men who have studied the Bible and can teach the Bible, then we come together to a position that we go back to that person as a group of men, not one. Not one person doing that. And so I think the most biblical, well, let me put it this way lastly. When you read the New Testament, the book of Acts, every New Testament church had more than one pastor. That's enough said. Every single one of them had a plurality of elders. This American model that we have where one guy calls all the shots, not in the book, not in there. And if we try to do it that way, I'll tell you why it works sometimes. Because you get a type A charismatic person that can run the whole thing. But there ain't a lot of pastors out there like that. So you need a plurality of elders, okay? At this point in class, I would normally go, you have any questions? But we're not going to do that tonight, okay? <clears throat> Let me show you one other passage, and we'll call these men up. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. In the first seven verses of that chapter, you have the qualification of elders. Now, listen to this, and we'll, we'll, we'll read this and wrap it up. God didn't give us these leadership positions without telling us the qualifications to serve in these positions. God spells it out for us here. And we're going to read the one for deacons since we're ordaining four deacons tonight. So look at verse 8. Likewise deacons. And the reason it says likewise deacons is because what he's saying is everything he just said about elders, likewise for those guys too, okay? Likewise deacons must be reverent, okay? Um, not double-tongued, not giving them much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well, 
For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now let me do a quick, just the high points here. Number one, deacons are to be reverent. The word there is grave. It doesn't mean a sourpuss. It doesn't mean someone who can't enjoy life. But it means reverent and respectful of a man who's called of God to serve in a place in the church. It means to be reverent, to be respectful of things in life. Don't, don't act flippantly about important things. One of the worst things a man can do is try to tell jokes all the time that are off-colored, that are almost off-colored, that are shady, that can be interpreted to Don't do that stuff. Be a man of reverence. Be a man who has grave, knows his place to walk with God. Uh, and in other words, you might go, a venerable person. A person of reputation, one, a man who earns respect from others. Be that kind of man to serve as a deacon. Not double-tongued, that's pretty self-explanatory. Don't say something that you don't mean, mean what you say. Uh, you know, the whole biblical thing, yes is yes and no is no. Uh, be, be definitive, okay? Number three, not given to much wine. We'll just cut right to the chase. We ask the men who serve in leadership here not to drink. If they can't abide by that, then they don't need to serve here. We just ask them not to do that. You say, well, a pastor doesn't say drink, don't drink in the Bible. You're right. Just don't have to serve as a deacon then. As simple as that. You say, well, that's kind of legalistic. No, it's about testimony. Right. These kids, is this guy in this pool up here? Yep. What do you think they're going to think? They see me down at the Jiffy store tonight buying a, a can of beer and putting it in a paper bag to get in my car. What do you think they're going to think? Well, it ain't real to the pastor because look at him. What do you think my kids are going to think? Which is important. What do you think my grown kids are going to think? You see? So we ask our, our deacons, our leadership, not to drink at all. Not greedy for filthy lucre, not greedy for money, not covetous of money, not materialistic. Uh, love of money is the root of all evil. Love of things, the love of this world. We ask our deacons not to be that way. Okay, number five, a man of faith. Uh, what we believe is the basis of who we are. Doctrine is the basis of who we are. Some people say, well, you know, I don't want to get into doctrine because it offends people. No, if you don't have doctrine, you don't have a foundation. If you don't know what you believe, you've got to be able to defend what you believe. Say what you believe. Have a reason for it. You say, well, somebody might not agree with me. So what? It's not their faith. It's yours. Say what you believe. Say what you think based on God's word. Be a man of faith. Number six, pure conscience. Basically, a clear conscience. Not, not living a double life. Not being hypocritical, okay? Just be a guy who, who has a pure conscience. Number seven, proven. I can tell you this, and I'm proud to say this. The men who are going to serve as deacons, the men who are going to serve as deacons in this church, they're already here. They're here all the time. We're not, we're not calling them to serve in a position to try to get them involved. They're already involved. They're already doing stuff. They're proven. They've been here. We can see their lives. Number eight, wives that support the deacon ministry. The wives are going, wait a minute. I don't know I had anything to do with this. Well, yeah, because if he's going to serve in a leadership position as a pastor or a deacon, then his wife can't be off the rails. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, she can't be like, you know, and we'll just leave it at that, all right? I mean, she can't be off the rails. In specific here, why? Because they're married. They're a team. They're a couple. And both of them have a testimony together. And then number nine, the husband of one wife. 
Now, much is made of that, and I want you to listen to me. Some people go, well, you know, if they've been divorced, they can't be deacons. Well, that's not what it says. I know men who, for whatever in their life, when they were lost or whatever happened, they, their marriage broke up, and God broke them, and they got saved, and they have a family now that's more godly than any family that they could have ever had in the past. And in that family, they meet every qualification. And in the Greek, you know what this says? A one-woman man. It means that in his life today, he is committed to his wife, and he don't look at every woman that goes by, and he's not fooling around with every woman that comes by. He is a one-woman man, and therefore he's qualified to serve in the church. And then finally, it says those who serve well. Those who serve well. Those who are conscious and do what God's called them to do. Well, I'm, I'm proud to say that the men who are going to come here tonight are all those things. And, you know, we don't go over to our house and look in the window and try to examine their life or nothing. But we have observed their life in the church, and we've observed their, their service and ministry in the church, and we've observed their testimony. And when we lay hands on them, the last thing I'll say is we're not imparting to these men anything we lay hands on them and pray, all we're doing is saying, man, we agree with God's call on your life, and we agree with you that God's called you to serve in this capacity, and so we, we gladly agree with God about you and pray over you as you begin to serve in this capacity. So, if the men will come uh, and have a seat up here. Come on, Ryan and Richard and Austin and Mike, you've seen these guys around the church. They all serve. Um, they've all served in different, y'all go ahead and be seated, they've all served in different places in the church. They're serving right now. And what I want to do is invite all the men who are ordained.